Aaron Copeland was the first great composer to write music that was distinctively American. He was certainly the first composer to write music recognized outside the US as being distinctively national, not inherited from or of Europe, but very much from and of America. In the early part of the 20th century, musicians in America were in something of a quandary. They had jazz, that defiantly American musical form, but those composers that wished to write music for the concert hall needed to find something more than jazz. Of course, they could borrow from elements of jazz, but they had to create a music which was of their country and not something which they'd borrowed from Europe. Now, Copeland, in his uh, early 20s, when he started composing, was very much the musician that perhaps his European counterparts would have wished him to be. He was an apostle of dissonance, and the first major work he wrote was a symphony for organ and orchestra for his composition teacher, Nadia Boulanger, and it led Walter Damrosch, who's the conductor, to say that if he can write music like this right now, in five years, he'll be ready to commit murder. <laughs> Anyhow, fast forward 15 or 20 years, late 30s, early 40s, a string of ballet scores, Billy the Kid, Rodeo, and finally, Appalachian Spring, which is the subject of our workshop today. Music which is absolutely American in its style, in its essence, in its very smell. There is no way this music could have been written by a European or could have originated from anywhere else than the good old US of A. The qualities, I think, enshrined in it are those of simplicity, of clarity, of a vastness, in a way, of the sense of the landscape and a belief in beauty, and all that allied with that most quintessential American quality, the can-do culture, that if you believe in beauty, simplicity, and purity, if you can see it with your own eyes, then you can achieve anything. Now, Appalachian Spring came about as a result of a commission from celebrated dancer and choreographer Martha Graham. She contacted Copeland and asked him to create a piece with her, and she sent him a script which was originally entitled House of Victory, it got the name Appalachian Spring further down the line. And the story of it concerns a pioneer celebration in a newly built farmhouse in the Pennsylvanian hills. A young bride-to-be and her farmer husband anticipating with a mixture of anxiety and excitement all the different kind of possibilities that their new domestic life was going to bring about. Um, the piece was instantly a great success. And shortly after the piece had originally been written, Copeland then made a version of it for full symphony orchestra. Then many years later, he then took that same suite and reconfigured it for the original orchestra of 13 players that had been the makeup of the orchestra for the original ballet. And it's that version of the piece that we're looking at today. Now, I talk about this, this sense of clarity, purity, and it's no small coincidence, I think, that the key to this whole piece, the genetic code, if you like, from which the whole piece develops, is enshrined in a shaker tune. The shakers were all about a kind of a rugged, ascetic simplicity. And that famous tune, which doesn't occur until towards the end of the piece, does contain every little piece of information that you need to understand the piece as a whole. Let's just quickly listen to it now.
So there you have it. Purity, simplicity, pioneering sunny hopes, energy, naivety. Now, if you listen to now the first five notes that the clarinet plays right at the very start of the piece, you can hear already the essence of that genetic code. Thirds and fifths, which are really essentially what makes up that tune. such openness in that, such simplicity. It's like a kind of non-militant fanfare, a bit like hearing the fanfare for the common man from a very great distance. Now, if I show you what then the strings have directly after that, they're, if you like, ghosting what the flute has. And this, again, is primary material for the whole piece. They assemble an open major chord with an added seventh and an added ninth. left with that extraordinary suspended chord. You heard in the first violins and the flute a kind of counter melody riding over the top of this endless reconstitution of these open chords with ninths and sevenths. Now we get to the first episode, the young bride-to-be, her entrance, full of action and certainly not any kind of dreaming. It's a new idea but it's still based on this primary major chord. America, the can-do culture, entrepreneurial culture, anything is possible. love theme. The psalm theme, actually, is Martha Graham originally called it, but it is nonetheless absolutely the love theme. It's the bride's love theme, and we get elements of this again and again through the piece. Still based, as you hear, around the essential elements of a primary major chord.
particularly unusual about that is that it's going down, it's a falling figure, it all feels very natural, and then suddenly it drops 13 notes, which looks on paper like a very odd and uncomfortable interval to make, but in fact, in the context, it works perfectly. Let's try it now, Tutti, and we'll hear how the other original figure from this dance-like movement fits around that. shaves off a quaver off the second bar here, creating a certain kind of difficulty in the rhythmic structure. This busy texture carries on for a little while and then he just slowly distills it down to its most basic elements. can't leave that rising arpeggio alone. Now, the next episode, the entry of the husband farmer, or the husband-to-be anyway, slightly awkward, slightly earnest, perhaps a little unimaginative, like men are meant to be. clarinet with elements of the love theme. Back to him. Now more from her. More from him. At this point, a revivalist and his followers remind the new householders of the strange and terrible aspects of human fate. This is absolutely about that kind of ascetic, resolute Puritanism which the Shrakers were known for. Now, it's a new idea here that Copeland introduces, and what he does is takes a very pure, clear tonality and then distorts it by flattening and sharpening. And what I'm going to ask the violins and violas to do first is to play the tune as it might have been had it not been distorted. So 
So, mournful, but still quite open, quite straightforward. But of course, human nature is not like that, especially if it concerns the subject of fate. This is what Copeland actually writes. Now, I'm going to put that with the other instruments now, and as a further sort of turbulence to all of this, Copeland suggested it be played poco rubato, in other words, with robbed time. In other words, that the pulse does not remain strict or constant. It ebbs and flows in very much the way all of our emotions do all of the time. <laughs> jazz harmonies in that as well, a kind of bittersweetness, the bittersweetness of life expressed in American-born music. Now, rather appositely, we get a love duet between her and him. So elements of her love theme, but also his element, which is essentially the first music we heard, that open chord. bit of the fate theme. Now, another new episode, the bride-to-be and the young farmer-husband enacting their emotions, joyful and, a very big and here, apprehensive that their new partnership invites. It's sort of like romping in the hay bales music, but with some more uncertainty and difficulty than purely that. Thank you. 
And what you hear there in the violins is quite neat, because at long last he finds an answer to this theme that he propounded or put forward in the clarinet and the flute at the beginning of this section. Let's just hear it on its own. Now let's put it in context with everyone else. Here it is. Now, more husband music. You remember I was talking about that rather inflexible, rather unimaginative kind of portrayal of manhood. Well, it's got an extra leg here in a funny way because you get two four bars, but interspersed between them there are bars of 5 eight. He's a bit Davy Crockett at this point, I think. I'm not quite sure what Copeland's suggesting here other than things are getting a little out of hand. <laughs> The man sweeps the woman across the threshold, and you can hear, I think, more than a little of the Mendelssohn wedding march. Now we go into a patch of pure, unadulterated, rustic merrymaking, but not repeat not like Beethoven's version of that. Here we have repeated notes, melodies, which have gone kind of mad, loads of scales out of which the melodies are made, lots of parallel force and rhythmic jolts, changes of time meter, length of bar, pretty much every bar. So it's pretty madcap. <laughs> Through a lot of this music, you hear a sense of American square dancing, although perhaps triangle would be a better shape to use. They're a bit like three-legged dances. Often the beats aren't where you quite expect them to be. And I'm sure this is in no small way due to the person for whom the piece was written, Martha Graham, celebrated choreographer and dancer. She had, by all accounts, a very, very unique and unusual style of movement, quite unlike anyone else who was dancing at the time, and that may well be why Copeland wrote music such as this. <laughs> Now, at the end of this section, it's quite interesting just to explore exactly how he winds it down. It's always a difficult challenge for a composer. If you've got a big and brusque and 
sort of joyous section like that, how you then find your way back to music of a more meditative nature. And indeed, that's what he does. He finds his way back to that love theme, which we hear in a variation in the flute. back absolutely to that opening material. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, we get to that shaker tune, that shaker tune that's contained every last piece of genetic information, as I said earlier, for the essence of the whole piece. It is a tune, of course, which has been beloved of the Christian church in latter years, thanks to the hymn writer Sidney Carter, who took the tune and made up those words called the Lord of the Dance to it. In the shaker version, its title is, Tis a Gift to be Simple, Tis a Gift to be Free, which is, I suppose, the epitome of American values and an appropriate sentiment in a time of war, which this was, 1944. The world was still very much under that particular terrible pendulous cloud. Now, there's an interesting quality here to what the violin writing is by way of a kind of accompaniment to the shaker tune. It's quite interesting when you look back at what Copeland wrote when he wrote the full orchestral version of this suite because some of the choices he made there are very telling because they show you exactly what it is that he was hearing in his head or a more exacting account of what he was hearing in his head. So you can then bring the knowledge of that back and apply it to this. Obviously, we can't change the instrumentation because this is what Copeland wrote, but we can play something close to the kind of sound world he wanted. If I show you what the violins have without any kind of effect placed on them, Now, we've tried to put a sort of slight edge to the sounds here because in the full version, this is a harp. So without changing any element of that that the violins are playing, we've tried to put that edge on the beginning of the sound. Now, let's put it underneath the clarinet playing the shaker tune.
come to what might be described as being the oldest trick in the book. He takes the shaker tune and spreads it out over a longer period of time, so it's actually at half speed, and he then subjects it to a kind of loose cannon. But before all of that, I just want to show you this absolutely delightful rocking figure, a real sense of domestic bliss that you get in the piano. And all the time there, you can hear those added ninths and fourths. So it's nearly perfect consonant harmony, but not quite. It has the essence, the smell of something new and exciting about it. Now here's the cannon. up in C major, that most open of all keys, pure joy. full and final version of this tune. Just think of the end of the ballet, The Firebird, by Stravinsky. Really blazing, really broad. suspended sea, which takes us into this final prayer-like section. And he says, actually, it's Mark Moderato, like a prayer. That's an absolutely key word to understand this last passage in the music. But absolutely not with any kind of mawkishness. Copeland was a very interesting artist in that he believed, and very much against the current at the time, that composing was about reflecting one's innermost state, one's emotional state, essentially. That composition was not about intellectualism. On the other hand, Copeland hated over-romanticism. He hated bulging sensual excess. As a conductor, and he was more and more of a conductor and less and less of a composer in the last part of his life, he would always be shouting at some string section or other somewhere around the world, there's too much Tchaikovsky in what you're playing. Take the Massenet out of what you're playing. Keep it simple. So he was very clear that he didn't want mawkishness, and certainly not in a place like this where it would be so easy to become mawkish. 
He identified, I think, very much with Beethoven, who was described by Schubert as having a superb coolness in the fire of creative fantasy. That's what Copeland aspired to. No lesser disciple of Aaron Copeland was Leonard Bernstein, and he said in a letter to Copeland, once he'd become familiar with this piece, I managed somehow to borrow some of that fantastic stability of yours, that deep serenity. It's really amazing how the clouds lift with that last page. And we get in a very, very final statement, one final assembly of that wide open major chord with its sevenths and ninths, a sense of this couple left quiet and strong in their new home. And now, any questions? Gentleman here. Has Hello. it been plagiarised in film music? Because it kind of, when you listen to it, it kind of, you can't get it out of your head that it sounds like film music, and, and, and um, that's kind of unfair. But it's totally right, and if only Copeland could It almost could sounds clichéd, well, not, not its own fault. If, he, if Copeland could have patented some of his devices and some of his sound world, he'd have been even wealthier than he actually was. Uh, yes, it's absolutely true. His, his style has been taken and, in some senses, bastardized, and in other senses, used to very great effect in a whole panoply of different, obviously, particularly American films. You can think of his music in a Western setting. You can think of it in some of the great love films of the 20th century. I don't know about horror movies, but he's been much used and much abused by many lesser composers since that time. And it's not surprising, because... However you describe it, whatever words you try and use, there is something so quintessentially American about this music. It could not have come from anywhere else. Anyone else? Bearing in mind that uh, Aaron Copeland, uh, thought of as the quintessential American composer, was himself of uh, Russian-Jewish uh, background, um, and considering the title of the piece, Appalachian Spring, um, and that recalls that other great 20th century piece of ballet music, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Um, I was wondering, um, does Copeland's piece bear any relationship to Stravinsky's piece? Well, it's interesting you, you asked that question. I'm not sure if it has any direct correlation to The Rite of Spring, but I often think of Appalachian Spring as being very close to Les Nos. I don't know if you're familiar with that Stravinsky work. But that is 
really a Russian wedding par excellence. There's never been, or to my knowledge anyway, a Russian wedding so graphically depicted as in Les Nos, which dates from back in about 1917. This piece, of course, 1944, is the quintessential American wedding. So I would say that's the closest cousin of Stravinsky's music to, to this piece of Copeland. I mean, Copeland was an absolutely mad devotee of Stravinsky, as were so many other American composers. He and his music spoke to them so much more directly, more directly, I think, than any other European composer, much more so than, say, Schoenberg. But the rhythm, the spikiness, the raw, earthy vitality of Stravinsky, I think, is here, as it is in a great many other Copeland scores.